Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kiblinska, and I'm talking today to Mingwei Song about his new book, Fear of Seeing, A Poetics of Chinese Science Fiction, which came out with Columbia just this month, I believe, right? Um, the book is a sweeping account of contemporary Chinese science fiction that begins by asking, and I quote, has anything new arrived with the new century that redefines contemporaneousness? As listeners might guess, guess in Song's account, the aesthetics of science fiction are the new and invigorating arrival on the scene of Chinese literature. Whether it be the technological sublime of Liu Cixin or the bodily horrors of Han Song, new Chinese science fiction engages with the problem of representing China with what Song identifies as the poetics of the invisible in new wave science fiction. Song shows how the invisible functions in chapters that are dedicated to both the major contemporary figures I just mentioned, as well as canonical writers like Lu Xun, as well also as the newest and edgiest science fiction writers that have only recently emerged onto the literary scene. Fear of Seeing shows how science fiction has given a country deprived of liberal imagination, I'm quoting, a multitude of new dreams. At the same time, Song suggests that the utopian and sometimes quite dystopian possibilities, both political and aesthetic, that have been opened up by new wave Chinese science fiction actually exist in an ambivalent relationship to state power. We will discuss these points, as well as many others, in detail in the following interview. I am very happy to welcome Professor Song to the program, and by way of a short introduction, uh, Mingwei Song is a scholar of literature and professor of Chinese at Wellesley College. His research interests range across modern Chinese literature, intellectual history, comparative literature, and literary theory. His recent recent research projects include the modern Chinese Bildungsroman, the discourse of youth and nationalism in late Qing and Republican China, and the life and work of Eileen Zhang. His current research project focuses on contemporary Chinese SF, that's what we're here to talk about, and its impact on larger literary and cultural paradigms. He is completing a trilogy of three monographs that examine, respectively, the poetics of new wave science fiction, the post-human turn in in the contemporary Chinese literary paradigm, and the neo-baroque in contemporary Sinophone fiction. In addition to these monograph projects in English, Song has published extensively in both Chinese and English, and his work has been translated and is doubtlessly read voraciously in various other languages. Welcome, Mingwei. Thank you, Julia. Very happy to be here. 
And we're thrilled to have you too. So I will say that in addition to meeting you for the first time a very long time ago, when you came to talk about science fiction, I think probably at the beginning of this project at Berkeley, um, I also very much enjoyed your previous new books interview about the book Young China, which is that first Anglophone uh, monograph about Bildungsroman and Chinese literature. I see connections between the animating questions of that project and your current work. One of them obviously is this, let's call it Lucian-esque concern with the children and the role of young writers. Can you tell us about the intellectual trajectory between that project and this one? Uh, Julia, now you mentioned uh, my talk at Berkeley. That's, that actually was the first uh, talk I gave in the United States about Chinese science fiction. Wow, it's, it must be 10 years ago, right? So, um, yeah, at that time, I was indeed... Uh, uh, just completed my my book on Young China. Um, my young the Young China book was based on my PhD dissertation that uh, I was working on, uh, and uh, uh, the supervision of the Professor David Wang, uh, and it's about Li Qing, uh, Republican years, uh, the modern novels. Um, uh, that actually was my main focus of research uh, during the years after I graduated from Columbia. And at that time, I I completely uh, predicted that I would work on youth and uh, youth-related questions for quite some time. I was considering... Uh, you know, all the modernity-related questions. So uh, science fiction was a, really a sad project for me at that time. In about 2008, uh, 2009, I got to know Liu Cixin and got to really um, observe uh, the rise of a, a new trend of science fiction that I later Characterized and named as uh, uh, the new wave, uh, as a kind of a breakup with uh, the not just the previous Chinese science fiction, uh, but also the like uh, the mainstream literature as well. Um, but my initial, but my initial thought was just to to do this sad project to let the. English readers and uh, um, the scholars in you know in uh, in countries outside China know that uh, there's this new phenomenon. I was quite excited about it, uh, but uh, uh, after I did the rendition special issues that uh, for the first time translated the works of Liu Cixin, Han Song, so on and so forth, I was asked by many journals to write something about uh, Chinese science fiction. So gradually I began to uh, kind of a really committed to a lot of small projects. Then uh, in about 2016, I realized I perhaps must do a real project about Chinese science fiction, not just uh, like the trans translation simple introduction and uh, not just to, to talk about uh, the content topic theme of uh, Chinese science fiction, but really to uh, look deeper into this uh, new type of writing um, to understand uh, the, the new meaning, some kind of like new meanings 
to the literary creation, the new literaryness,、um, how that was changed by Chinese science fiction. So that came to the politics, to the part of politics.、Um, then it's really after I completed this book that I realized there was a interesting connection between Young China and the fear of seeing. Young China was like about everything that the fear of seeing,、uh, almost subverted. <laughs> well, Young China is、uh, really centered on the big questions concerning modernity,、uh, the nation state, the modern subjectivity, the dominant genre of the modern era, the modern novel in particular, in particularly, uh, uh, sorry, in in particular. The Buildings Roman that、uh, unfolds as a narrative about uh, uh, a single protagonist's development, with the background in the kind of a formation of a, a modern consciousness about the nation, about uh, um, all the big ideas of、uh, the Enlightenment, things like that.、Uh, even though Young China, the book in the book, I actually wrote about.、Uh, The counter buildings roman, how the buildings roman kept fa- kept f- failing the modernity as a failed project.、Uh, but in fear of seeing, I obviously moved to the contemporary,、uh, moved to the questions related to、uh, such a central question: What if the modernity has failed? Uh, and uh, how do we deal with the ruins of a contemporary?、Uh, sorry, how do we deal with the ruins of modernity? And、uh, in the contemporary science fiction, I saw quite a lot of very ed- cutting edge depictions of uh, uh, the darkness surrounding、uh, this image about the ruins of modernity. It's like.、Uh, If I can actually, I I I'm I'm right now working on the paper,、uh, called Young China Revisited. <laughs> uh, that's about uh, four contemporary novels that you can call science fiction, but also、uh, experimental novels, uh, that were that were written during the pandemic, uh, kind of from from writers in Beijing. Taipei, Hong Kong, and different locations,、uh, depicting like the failure of、uh, the Young China project. One almost one hundred twenty years after Liang Qichao sort of invented the Young China movement,、um, and this I can do now because of the, the science fiction book. I kind of like circled back to the topic. After two jiazi, two sixty-year cycle, and、uh, I got to know that、uh, the darkness actually has a has a has a more dominant. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, I I can see that like it's it's, it's all the bright hope for young China is not turning dark. I think that that darkness is a、uh, or this dark consciousness is what I'm、uh, willing to truly show instead of uh, like uh, uh, returning to young China as、uh, what I did twenty 
12 years ago, I would say, yeah. Yeah, well, nevertheless, what a productive uh, conjoining of two topics that leads you back to the beginning in a new way. Um, but speaking of false starts, um, where do you locate the origins of Chinese science fiction? You do talk about those well-known moments in the late Qing period or the early post-Mao reform era in the 1980s. Um, my sense from reading your book is that there is a historical grounding to the work that you're writing about in the 1980s. But at the same time, you argue that it doesn't necessarily, this new wave, share a direct lineage with the science fiction that was being written in the early 1980s. So how does the 1980s impact the authors that you write about? Why re keep returning to that moment? Um, that's a very good question. Um, usually people would uh, trace like uh, um, the late Qing or early uh, reform era as the origin of uh, Chinese science fiction. But I, I do find that uh, um, uh, for late Qing writers, it's there's certainly obsession with China. It's certainly um, related to the Young China project. Um, it's a it's a, a kind of a, uh, uh, I'd like to use Rudolf Wagner's term. It's a kind of a lobby literature, and this lobby li literature uh, exists. It also existed in the nineteen early nineteen eighties when science fiction was a part of the reform uh, project. But for the new wave, I I was truly fascinated by the invisible. Here, I want to talk about uh, the literal invisibility of the genre uh, when it began to emerge uh, in nineteen in the late nineteen eighties, uh, when writers like Liu Cixing and Han Song were writing without uh, any attention to it, they did not even publish it. So, uh, like in, in my book, I mentioned the, the multiple origin origins of uh, the new wave. Um, like uh, in nineteen eighty nine, uh, uh, Liu Cixin began to conceive the novel China twenty one eighty five. Uh, this uh, novel truly um, echoing the reform era's kind of. Uh, uh, avant-garde spirit and uh, uh, the farewell to revolution, things like that. Uh, um, and uh, in 1988, Han Song began to write uh, the tomes of the uh, universe uh, to let darkness emerge as uh, the profound uh, background uh, where humans could uh, still have a some kind of agency, instead of uh, uh, only giving this uh, hopeful bright color. Uh, and uh, uh, I think these writings uh, were certainly invisible to people at that time. But they, they were like the real foundation for the new wave that departed from the previous per paradigm uh, of uh, either uh, kind of like uh, trying to legitimize science fiction as an extension of realism, critical realism, or social socialist realism, or uh, continuing to uh, make science fiction still a genre where writers could express their obsession with China. That's what uh, the early reform era um, 
writers like uh, uh, Zheng Wenguang and other writers, uh, Tong Enzheng, uh, tried to do. Even Lao She did that with the cat country after all the darkness uh, on Mars. Uh, Lao She would give us hope about China's future. Uh, exactly the same that Liang Qichao and other people tried to do. Uh, but for Liu Cixin, Han Song writing in the late 1980s, and for many other writers writing in the uh, late 1990s and the early 20th century, uh, they already uh, departed from the pure previous paradigm. They already were on a very different route to giving uh, the darkness the dominant position in their imagination about the future, about the invisible part of China, the, the profound invisibility of uh, reality beneath uh, what we can observe uh, by the human sides, by the human perceptions. So, so let uh, me jump in then and ask you to mm. define for our readers, because I think they will be intrigued, but perhaps not quite familiar with the poetics of the invisible. Why is it so important in your work, as you insist, to address the fear of seeing that comes up repeatedly in new wave Chinese science fiction? Yeah, um, the poetic of the invisible um, is kind of a theorization of my uh, observation on Chinese science fiction. Um, initially, it's uh, about uh, three uh, different uh, kind of a different approaches to Chinese science fiction. Uh, well, first, historically, science fiction was a genre on the margin, almost invisible to the mainstream. Uh, that's a historical approach. Secondly, uh, it's about this politics, of uh, cultural politics of Chinese science fiction. Um, it's often brushed as the insignificance by the power structure. And uh, when this new wave emerged, actually it uh, did not uh, did not wish to be uh, legitimized by the authorities initially. They, they just created a parallel universe to the mainstream. And, and for about 10, 20 years, there were no interactions between the mainstream and uh, um, the science fiction. So in terms of power relations, science fiction was also like a... a Invisible subversive force uh, uh, in relation to the mainstream literature uh, on the scene, and thirdly, I consider the poetics of the invisible as a unique, uh, as being unique to Chinese science fiction in the sense that if we uh, if we're trying to find the, the Main characteristics of uh, the aesthetics, like the aesthetics of the Chinese science fiction. If there's such a thing as the aesthetics of Chinese science fiction, I would say it's uh, about uh, the invisible. Um, this does not apply to all science fiction genres in the world. Say not American science fiction perhaps not uh, Hollywood, not about Marvel Universe, for example, not about Superman. Uh, those are quite visible heroes, cultural symbols. But uh, the Chinese science fiction often 
betray the very uncanny, uh, very uh, kind of uh, uh, submersive things on the scene, like the dark forest. That's like the central image in Liu Cixin's uh, three-body universe. Well, the dark, the dark forest, together with the Tresolerans, those alien species, and the super advanced alien species that wipe out the solar system, they are kind of unseen. They are invisible to humans. This is something that you cannot uh, put a finger on in any real situation. Uh, it's uh, something you have to conjure up in your mind to think counterintuitively. It's, it's just like Lu Xun's madman saying cannibalism. That's uh, truly something you have to use the counterintuitive thinking, speculation to figure out. And that's yet so, so closely related to what the reality is. It's like to seeing the reality we see every day is not real, but something deeper than that is real. And this, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, we can see this matter physical meaning of the real is uh, uh, perhaps uh, more important to us to understand what China is, what contemporary China is. Uh, I, I'd like to give this example that, that I perhaps gave, already gave at my Berkeley talk 10 years ago, My Fatherland Does Not Dream by Han Song. Well, in this short story, Han Song gave us two images of China. One is China is a very marvelous economic economic success. This short story was written in 2002. But the invisible part of this reality is that during nighttime, the Chinese population turned into sleepwalking popula population. <laughs> uh, the, sleep the sleepwalking was actually manipulated by the central government central government by some microwave that came together with the Xinmen Lianbo with the very happy news hour that was broadcast every night. So it's like to, to induce the Chinese population into a Chinese dream, even though this story was written 10 years before the Chinese dream appeared as a kind of a vocabulary. Um, then in this story, what's really uh, interesting is that uh, the invisible part of this dream is more important for us to understand the contemporary China. It's not the surface rea re reality about uh, like uh, uh, the, the the China's rising, like uh, 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 the harmonious society or the kind of like a economic miracle. But it's about uh, how the Chinese people are actually induced into a collective national dream. And uh, to anyone who is awake outside of this dream, like the protagonist, this is a nightmare. So it's like a dreaming a nightmare uh, being the opposite of the surface reality, this invisible reality, and how the story actually works as a mechanism 
of unfolding uh, what is invisible and putting it into uh, the picture about Chinese reality that creates this poetics of invisible as the unique aesthetics of Chinese science fiction. Great. Um, so as you say, there is a unique aesthetic here, but you do engage um, with many theorists of science fiction who are writing primarily about Western science fiction. And the second chapter of your book in particular, I think is the most theoretical, let's say, or, or among the most theoretical science fiction as method. And you talk about how science fiction um, is a method of entangling reality and representation in a way that is drastically different from realism. Um, can you tell us whose work among the theorists that you list is most significant to your own theorization? I was struck, um, for example, by your conversation with Jameson, who works famously with dialectics and antinomies as methods. Um, but you suggest science fiction is best understood in terms of non-binary coexistences, entanglements, so what are the theoretical tools that we need or that new wave Chinese science fiction demands um, that emerge from that conversation with, with Western-based, let's say, theoretical mm. approaches? So I will answer this question in two parts. First, about the influence of uh, the series on me and then how I um, view science fiction as a method and uh, then the theories, the theoretical tools uh, that we need. Um, well, I received a lot of influences from other theories. First, I, 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 when I entered this project, I did not know anything about the existing theories. So I read a lot. I even uh, organized a workshop to invite uh, uh, really like uh, the Western uh, serious uh, science fiction scholars to Wellesley so I can learn from them directly. And uh, I, I received influence from uh, Dako Suwen, Istvan Cesar Rone Jr., and Su Yang Chu, and uh, many other people. Um, well, Dako Suwen, Istvan, Dako Suwen and Istvan Cesar Rone Jr., they gave me a sense about how science fiction was studied in the uh, first in the in terms of formalism in terms of uh, like formalism structuralism and the cultural studies um, those are fundamentally important to me but I'm particularly interested in what Su Yang Chu uh, talked about in her book Do Metaverse Dream of Literal Sleep uh, Su Yang Chu actually um, enlarged the scope of uh, uh, the research where we can talk about science fiction uh, she truly compared science fiction with realism the mimesis and she gave us very stunning remark that is uh, science fiction is actually high intensity mimesis. Well, ordinary realism is only low intensity uh, mimesis. And she also compares science fiction with poetry. Uh, she actually finds that science fiction has more affirmatives with uh, poetry rather than with modern novels. Uh, that's about uh, the intensity of the verbal expression, the musicality, the intriguing effect of the language, things like that. These are very, very helpful to me. Um, 
I think what I drew from Su Yang Chu's theory is that science fiction can be used as a, a method to re to relook at to reflect on what literature is. Is that it's possible to build a little literary theory based on science fiction. So this is different from what uh, uh, see from Aristotle to today, uh, while we talk about literature, we certainly regard mimesis as the foundation of, uh, of uh, um, literature. Well, Su Yang Chu gave me the inspiration that uh, science fictionality, uh, something that does not exist, something completely speculative, uh, something growing up from the brain rather from the reality, uh, some counterintuitive senses or the posthuman senses beyond what we ordinarily trust with our faculties. Uh, this can be uh, a new method to re-examine what literature is based on our understanding of uh, science fiction. So the second group are cultural critics engaging with genre from from contemporary perspectives. Uh, here comes uh, Frederick Jameson, who tries to argue in science fiction the utopian impulse still exists, and that's a very valuable contribution to uh, the theoretical construction of the uh, uh, literary theory about science fiction. And also Donna Harvey and uh, Nancy Catherine Hales uh, from, the angle, from the angle of uh, post-human critics. I think these, these theories are very, very important. But more powerful influence came to me while I was really writing this book, trying to theorize uh, my own observations of science fiction. Here are scholars, uh, are actually philosophers that uh, uh, we do not usually think about when we talk about science fiction. Here are Michel Foucault, here are perhaps even Zhang Taiyan, who interpreted uh, Zhuangzi. I don't think in this book I mentioned that, but in the, in the kind of a new, in the new projects I'm doing, I, men, I mentioned like Zhuangzi's butterfly and uh, Michel Foucault's laughter, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but it's not really Zhuangzi, but it's Zhang Taiyan's interpretation of Zhuangzi's Qi Wu Lun. Uh, uh, and Omar Calabrese, uh, who was a good friend of Umberto Eco, Eco wrote the preface to uh, Calabrese's uh, the theoretical book about the New Baroque, and uh, Deleuze, of course, uh, who wrote about who wrote about the New Baroque in both Foucault and uh, the Fold, two books. Uh, in which he uh, talked about the Baroque, the new Baroque. Um, so what I'm trying to build is a, is kind of a, uh, a theory I should see is not just the imitation of uh, the other theories. I think finally I, I wanted to articulate a, a kind of a new theory about uh, uh, what science fiction could give us to understand what is the contemporary. This is, of course, Agamben's question, what is the contemporary? Uh, I try to fit this into how we understand um, the, the emerging kind of a new literature 
uh, versus the 20th century literature uh, that still centers on largely the binary structure, the Hegelian binary structure, uh, uh, and the modernity projects. Uh, I think science fiction gave us the first preview of a world uh, that emerged after the ruins of modernity. Uh, so this is a, a kind of a theoretical situation we need to deal with. Um, it's like a, um, a lot of the previous theories may not be applicable to interpreting this uh, new literary uh, evasion. Uh, uh, now, it's not just science fiction. It's actually it's happening to... Uh, a lot of the literary works. Uh, but interestingly, this is related to science fiction in one way or another. This is like a speculative, uh, this is speculative uh, aspects that have become more and more important to contemporary literature, not just in China, but also in the Sinophone uh, sphere, but and also largely in, in a larger uh, picture. This is about a lot of the literary movements emerging from the margins, the the like the the zones where different ethnic groups have clashes, and the margins of a, like a, a really large literary republics like the United States and French literature, American literature, British literature, but on the verge from the immigration writers from the. Um, uh, kind of uh, 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 non-binary writers, I think this is becoming more and more important. And the writing about uh, a world that that no longer centers on a human-centric understanding of the world. Yeah. Thank you for your answer. Um, working off of what you just said, I will push uh, towards one of the main, I think, author-centered chapters of the book, which is surprisingly to some readers, I'm sure, about Lu Xun, right, who is not usually thought of as a science fiction writer, although certainly we can make the case that speculative, um, and I think you make a good case for us to reconsider, right, his relationship to realism um, and his formal experimentation, especially in A Madman's Diary. So what unsettling shadow, if I use, you know, Lucian's own imagery from Wild Grass, does this author cast, this author from, you know, more than 100 years ago, uh, or about 100 years ago, cast on new wave science fiction today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, this was inspired by the new wave science fiction writers themselves. Uh, when I first uh, heard, like, two science fiction writers talk about this this kind of they, they did not call it a new wave. They just told us like a, a kind of a new trend of science fiction. This is a uh, this is what I described at the beginning of the book. Uh, Han Song and uh, Fei Dao uh, uh, presented at a conference uh, in two thousand ten um, at Fudan University. They both referred to Lu Xun as the influence on contemporary Chinese science fiction. I was puzzled by this. Actually, I like you, I, I, I had this uh, curiosity about why there was a connection. And uh, um, the 
I can give an easy answer. That is, all the science fiction, almost all the science fiction writers active now, they tried to, they did not try to、uh, see that their, uh, their, their heirs to like、uh, the late Qing writers or early Reform era、uh, writers. They tried to give us the impression that.、Uh, They are heirs to Lu Xun. So this is a very easy answer, and there are a lot of like、uh, Lu Xun's images in their writings, like、uh, Iron House. Iron House turned into all kinds of、uh, modern、um, kind of a digital or electric or aluminum airplanes. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly.、Um, or subway, yeah. So I think this.、Uh, Um, it's like influence, and、uh, as you said, it's like a certain shadow、uh, in the literary works. But uh, uh, by 2018, I came to perceive Lu Xun、um, as being fundamentally important to our understanding of Chinese science fiction in a way that Lu Xun actually offered、um, an alternative. Uh, literariness to what the later、uh, scholars and writers tried to categorize his writings.、Uh, well,、um, the mainstream、uh, kind of a mainstream interpretation is that Lu Xun created modern literature. He's like the father of、uh, modern Chinese literature. He presented the Enlightenment ideas and uh, uh, gave us the、uh, the form realism. However, what's really interesting is that I, after many consideration and、uh, also, I tried to study、uh, the connection between Lu Xun's early practice in translating science fiction, including a very interesting writer,、uh, Louise J. Strong. Her work, an unscientific story, the horror in that story, connecting that to、uh, a madman's diary, I begin to see in Lu Xun like the double origins of not just twentieth-century Chinese literature, and also twenty-first Chinese science fiction. <laughs> so,、um, so the ambiguity of Lu Xun is remarkably profound. And also significant for us to understand what modernity is and what modernity is not, the negative side of the, or the negative image of modernity. Lu Xun already wrote about in a Madman's Diary, and uh, um, what connects them is also the poetics of the invisible, <laughs> fear of seeing again. Ah,、uh, in. In Hanson's story,、uh, the fear of seeing, he already writes about、uh, what reality、uh, in depths can be really horrifying. It's something we do not、uh, feel comfortable looking at. It's like abysmal depth of the reality, which is fearful. And、uh, Liu Cixin's "The Sublime" is also fearful. Dark forest, the, abu-、uh, the abuse in the sky, the abuse in the in the in the dark forest—that is the universe itself. 
and、uh, Lu Xun already wrote about that in a madman theory. Uh, like uh, the mad the madman has to overcome the fear, because in the beginning he feared about、uh, the unsettling reality he's going to reveal cannibalism, but he did overcome that fear to. Articulate this invisible, unspeakable、um, horror of the reality that's simply elusive to other observers. If you do not think counterintuitively, if you do not have a、uh, this self-conscious critic of、uh, the reality, and、uh, I think Lucian's amendment diary is a puzzle to himself. Uh, because in his other writings, like Kongyiji,、uh, like medicine, he's it is it, kind of more faithful, more faithful to reality or to the memory of reality or to the construction of the reality that has a, a meaning to be evoked to be、uh, helpful to the enlightenment project. But in a medicine diary. This is a scary truth, and the way of observing that scary tr- truth is actually、um, like a like a myth. It's like a really mythological, and that has been carried on by or picked up by Liu Cixin and Lu Xun in the twenty first century in the Three Body Trilogy, in the Hospital Trilogy, in My Father's Land Does Not Dream, in Fear of Seeing.、Uh, these writers actually. Uh, uh, gave this、uh, this kind of、uh, ambiguous origin of Lu Xun about、uh, the fear of the invisible, a、uh, truly as 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 norm、uh, to to give it really a larger depiction on the astron astronomical scale, uh, and it's also about the future, not just about、uh, the past. Uh, here I see、uh, Lu Xun. Actually, Lu Xun's case gave me the first practical use of science fiction as a method to re-evaluate twentieth-century Chinese literature. So from there, I feel well. I overcome my fear of、uh, seeing Lu Xun, the the darker side of Lu Xun, the dark consciousness of Lu Xun that does not perhaps. Be in line with the previous scholarship of talking about Lu Xun only as a kind of orthodox master of the Enlightenment, the modernity, modern writer. So when I gave the my first lecture about the, the Madman's Diary, yeah, can we read a Madman's Diary as science fiction in Stockholm? Actually, people celebrated. That idea, the Swedish scholars, the audience, they they thought it's really marvelous. But when I gave the talk in China,、oh, no. <laughs> uh, I was questioned. <laughs> I received a lot of questions.、Uh, people cast a doubtful、uh, cast on me. So sort of, are you are you insane? Things like that. But、uh, I also received、uh, some encouragement from particularly women scholars. I think this is the first practice of the,、uh, yeah, women scholars in the sense that、uh, I don't know, like、uh, Professor Liu Na and Professor,、um, sorry, yeah, some professors,、uh, they 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 truly、uh, 
thought this discovery is a is 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 meaningful for us to just to rethink about Lushin. Um, but this is like a minority uh, of scholars. This this question is still uh, kind of really unsettling to the established scholarship about Lushin in China. But I'm I assuming like this. that this book is already ready to go in Chinese, so they will get a chance to <laughs> read and engage with your work as well. <laughs> Uh, I hope so. Yeah, I think this is a, this is very uh, important for us to have a kind of a yeah. This is also a non-binary in terms of uh, like see uh, uh, the par the, the paradigm of the twentieth century literature and what we can perceive as a, a, a kind of a, a subversive. Uh, reflection on that, so uh, we can think. Uh, in a way that both end, not either or, uh, is not. Uh, uh, some people mistook this as I'm trying to see a madman's diary is science fiction. Actually, I never said that. I only try to see, uh, seeing, uh, perceiving a madman's diary as a, uh, as a kind of a a literary work in relation to science fiction can give us some inspiration about uh, the 20th cent- 21st century literature as well. So Lu Xun is still contemporary to us in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just reading your book, you'll get a sense that all of the other figures that you talk about are clearly um, still quite interested in Lu Xun and his metaphors, right, and his formal experiments. So perhaps let's go to one of these greats, right? Um, as you have already dropped his name several times, but Liu Cixin, right? You, of course, the author of the three-body um, universe. Now, I guess it's coming to be with all the extrapolations and various media. So you identify his embrace of the technological sublime and something that you call the macro detail with the neo-baroque. Um, you also mentioned that Liu can be considered a neoclassical writer for his similarities with these classic mid-century greats of science fiction. Um, but let's let's pause with Neo Baroque. What is that, and how does this concept help us understand Liu's oeuvre? Um, and I'm I'm sure I'm already doing a lot of foreshadowing here because it seems like you are working um, on several projects that are pushing this forward. Well, I think Liu Cixin's work is actually complicated. It's not uh, it's not uh, productive to just uh, reduce his work to a simple or simply simplified interpretation one way or another. I think in Liu Cixin, uh, there are conflicting forces existing. Uh, we can see it's certainly sublime, and there's certainly the classical aspect of the space opera and. Uh, uh, the story about uh, the universe and the human experience on really uh, the larger a- aspect, uh, uh, like Asimov, like uh, Arthur C. Clarke, 2001, A Space Odyssey, like that. Um, but I refuse to just uh, recognize Liu Cixin as a classic, kind of mid-century-like great. Uh, which was the mainstream voice um, by Chinese scholars? They thought he's like a, about he's like the epic, the, the the legend, the romance. But I see darkness in his works too. I think that's also 
what attracted me initially is the darkness, not just the, the bright the bright color of the future. And if you look at the three body trilogy, it's truly connecting the tragedies of the cultural revolution and the end of the human civilization. So it's not a bright future. It's actually it's it's purely darkness connecting the evil doing and the the social Darwinist scenario of the universe as symbolified as symbolified by um, uh, the dark forest. Um, so this is my understanding of Liu Cixi in, in terms of the the big theme. I really think that he writes about the universe not like uh, Asimov does uh, at a time when um, United States is becoming uh, so super uh, like during Cold War and also the 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 growth of American power in the world. Uh, Liu Cixin's work actually is about uh, the apocalyptic end of the everything we know. So for that, I think he's different from the Swift's opera writers. Uh, so uh, I, I mentioned that Liu Cixin can be considered um, new classes to, with similarities with the classic mid-century Greeks, uh, but that mainly came from the Chinese scholars. It's not my own idea. I tried to actually I tried to say something against these uh, sweeping characteristics. I tried I tried to see I tried to demonstrate that in Liu Cixin there there's a multiplicity instead of a simplicity or singularity. This is not one question. It's actually many, many different questions. And for that, I refer to the language to infinity. So this is not, la- this is not a language that's transparent. It's a language that consists of many, many folds. Uh, and uh, in the two-dimensional image of the solar system, I I use Liu Cixin's own term macro details to try to show to us this is the new baroque because the new baroque is about uh, the many many folds uh, beneath uh, what we perceive as the surface. Or the surface can be the uh, unfolding of the many many folds uh, that that drop from a, it's like a three, three-dimensional world falling into a two-dimensional image. I, um, from here, I actually, I, I find the new Baroque in Liu Cixin as well. Um, even though I actually, I'm going to write a, another book about the new Baroque. Uh, however, uh, in, in in this book, I already mentioned the new Baroque several times. Uh, it's like a, yeah, like a foreshadowing of uh, what I'm going to write next. Um, it's because in those things, I do say this, and uh, I do think this, uh, um, this uh, refusal to see the world as it is like a monolithic and a singular image that can be constructed with a purpose. I do see this has a 
this has collapsed in Liu Cixin. I think there's not one single scenario about the dark forest. Um, he's trying to give us very rich, uh, multiple understandings of uh, the human fate and the universe. So in light of that, I think it's, and, and what you said previously about Lu Xun, it's quite interesting that both of these writers have been co-opted into certain much more simplistic narratives about Chinese modernity. You don't go into this at great length, but you do have a couple of pages on which you mentioned that Liu's work has been embraced by something we might call like a nationalist technologist um, in ways that were not intended by the author, as far as we know. Can you tell us a bit about these uses of science fiction, both in terms of Leo, but also in science fiction more generally? What is this ambivalent relationship between the imaginative and the transgressive, and then also state power, which is not very imaginative or transgressive? In particular, I'm thinking, you know, like Three Body was adapted into a big budget TV show just this past year. Wandering Earth was also a big blockbuster film. Um, these are really bleak visions of the future in their original. So how is it that they are somehow able to be also very mainstream visions of a powerful or technologically uh, determined nationalist future? Hmm. Um, this is about the use of the literature. This is about the use of uh, science fiction uh, by government, by both government and the market, actually. Uh, when Liu Cixin was first seen after this invisible sphere, actually, I remember many scholars from overseas and poets um, who are not uh, truly in the land of the government policy, uh, they celebrate Liu Cixin. But then 10 years later, many of them showed regret of doing that. I think the change is not about Liu Cixin himself because he didn't produce another work over the past 10 years. Uh, over the past 13 years, he hasn't produced uh, another important work. It's about the interpretation of Liu Cixin has been manipulated by the nationalists or even a little bit like extreme, um, yeah, kind of like a new nationalists, uh, leftists. Um, it's very interesting that uh, the three-body trilogy first uh, gave uh, a new generation of uh, scholars concerned with China's uh, image and role in the international politics, gave them a real politics kind of uh, uh, epiphany about the real politics. So in Liu Cixin, I tried to say this is the politics of the invisible, but uh, to those scholars, this is the real politics, like a guidebook to the real politics. So they saw in the dark forest, not as I saw, uh, like uh, uh, this is a, um, a dark consciousness. They saw in dark forest uh, a moist strategy revived. <laughs> so there, there has been a uh, different name to this group. First is called uh, San Ti Dang, the three-body po- three party, kind of like a, a political party uh, with the three-body as their guidelines. <laughs> then there was uh, the industrial party I mentioned briefly in, in, in my book. 
um, then today it's like uh, uh, in China, a lot of scholars use this kind of uh, scenario. And uh, there are also a lot of scholars trying to use the pro-governmental uh, interpretations to talk about uh, Liu Cixin's work. Of course, Liu Cixin could not deny that, you know, in he, he couldn't have said anything against it in 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 his context, in his situation in China. Um, but I think we should return to the text itself. Uh, that's where I could, I tried to use the new Baroque to uh, kind of uh, fight back against these new interpretations. Um, I wrote about Liu Cixin, uh, actually I, I, I'm perhaps the first scholar giving Liu Cixin a very serious, serious uh, interpretation 10, uh, 13 years ago, uh, in 2010, I wrote a very long article in Chinese about him. And uh, this chapter is already the third effort to theorize what we can learn from, we can learn from Liu Cixin or learn about Liu Cixin, or the third version of uh, such an observation. So what I'm doing now is try to bring us back to Liu Cixin's text to analyze the this new Baroque textuality of his work uh, as a multiplicity in resistance to singularity. <laughs> okay. To, uh, so to the Chinese yes. Communist Party is not, not interested in resistance to singularities, I think. Um, but uh, in the next chapter, um, which is another kind of author study, you present um, Han Song, right, who is actually, as far as I know, uh, not quite as easy to take up for nationalist purposes. His where Liu is a technologist who embraces science, of course, this technological sublime, there are ways in which his work can be used, right, for the technocratic purposes. Um, Hans cannot. He blends science fiction with a type of horrific mythos. Can you tell us about the two main topoi of Hans' fictions, the ones that you examine in the chapter specifically, infrastructural systems, trains, subways, um, and these evolving ocean civilizations both strike me as really interesting kind of conflagrations of ecology and media and environment. And can you tease out for readers how these ostensibly technological or scientific spaces interact with what you call Han's anatomical aesthetics, which are quite different from the technological sublime? Hmm. Uh, Han Song is very difficult to read and understand. Uh, sometimes I had to read uh, his text uh, nine times, ten times, uh, and still I was not sure. And I, I asked Han Song himself. Han Song is a good friend of mine. Uh, Liu Cixin is also a good friend of mine. But uh, I rarely consult with Liu Cixin about how to interpret him. But I, I did sometimes ask Han Song about what this means. Han Song said, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> So, and Han Song is very humble. He always said, oh, my writing is not uh, worthy of uh, your critical kind of uh, attention. Uh, but I think actually this book with the title Fear of Seeing is really a Han Song focused book. Han Song looms really large everywhere in this book. So Han Song is not just the protagonist of this chapter uh, about Han Song. Han Song is actually the main protagonist of this book uh, together with Liu Cixin. Uh, um, and it's not until I could uh, put these two writers side by side 
did I understand、uh, this chthonic,、uh, the dark force、uh, existing in Hanson's writing?、Um, it's because mainly through a comparison with Liu Cixin, I begin to understand Hanson as a, a writer who is. Just like Liu Cixin is obsessed with the、um, sublime, Hanson is really obsessed with the chthonic horror, and this chthonic horror does not manifest manifest in the like、uh, um, the space, but rather in the body. So. Hanson's writing can be seen as a a post-human version or post-human clone of the human itself, with a new body that、uh, truly shows the entanglement between the technological aspect and the bodily、uh, sensations. So. It's hard to differentiate it,、uh, the dream and、uh, reality in Hanson's writings. Well, the dream happens in a way that it's a technologized dream. So I talk about the technologies, the dreaming, and、uh, the technologized dream in Hanson. Uh, uh, these come together in the sense that the technologies、uh, do not serve an external purpose. But rather, it's a, a technology for、uh, the human to see the post-post-human horror that has happened inside himself as the extension of、uh, the horrifying reality. So this is a traumatized body. This is a traumatized uh, uh, self uh, tortured by all these horrific feelings. Uh, dreams, and the technology is a part of that.、Uh, when we talk about the technology of、uh, surveillance,、uh, the AI observing everything in in the place of the Big Brothers, for example,、uh, that happens in the hospital, that happens in my fatherland does not dream, the manipulating of the human brain. But on the other hand, the Hanson's writing is like matter. Text or metafiction that、um, kind of shows shows clearly how this technology can be borrowed by the writer to internalize all these、um, horrors in in the body. So, in the sense that, in this sense, Hanson's writing is、uh, at the same time a critic of the technologies of、uh, the surveillance, kind of like the. The the society, the government. On the other hand, this is a a, a recognition of the fearful、uh, existence in oneself. Again, this is like Madman's Diary. Who, but in Madman's Diary, is about the flesh. It's about the meat, the human flesh being eaten. But to the Madman, it's also about a self-conscious. Recognition of the self as a part of cannibalism, so this is also applicable to Hanson. Hanson needs to use anatomical details to to really to cut 
through the body of the writers. The writer or the protagonist, his alter ego, often called Xiao Something, Xiao Ji, Xiao Wu, uh, yeah, so on and so forth. Uh, these these uh, alter egos, their bodies have to be uh, really torn apart, and uh, this is kind of like darkness coming from within. Uh, that's related to. How Hansung presents Cenotopia, China. I I think that's a, that's something perhaps readers are curious about too. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming up towards the end of our interview,、um, but I do want to give readers a sense of the diversity that we find in the rest of your book, not just about authors from mainland China, the PRC, but also Sinophone science fiction more broadly. We don't have time to discuss the rest of the book in detail. And I have some questions that I prepared, but instead of my questions, perhaps I would like to open up the floor for you to tell us、um, what are the new wonders that you end with, and how does the end of this book pre- present to us、um, the beginning of the new project about the neo baroque?、Um, and after that,、uh, we will have to let you go and move on with your day to keep writing that new book. Uh, thank you, Julia, for asking this question. Actually, uh, I uh, finished my first draft、uh, during the first year of the pandemic,、uh, and that version ended with the、uh, Cenotopia,、uh, this Hansung concept、uh, that turned China like、uh, inside out, and to show to the readers what China is kind of alternative version. Uh, of a、uh, utopian, dystopian, heterotopian, how that actually can be used as a、um, science fictional motif to show the invisible darkness of、uh, contemporary China, or just the invisible part of China, contemporary China, the、um, everything that is not talked about in ordinary life, kind of like not allowed to be talked about. So that would end the book with a kind of a dark tone, but、uh, during the pandemic, I kept reading、uh, like a new outflows, like new books published in China. I got to read quite a group of young writers, so that gave me inspiration to add this chapter in my second draft. That uh, actually uh, uh, was the version this published.、Uh, Book is based upon.、Um, in these writers, I saw quite a different trend. If we talk about、uh, like the big concern of a、uh, contemporary Chinese science fiction is that after the Three Body Trilogy, there's no significant work that could surpass Liu Cixin. So I don't think anyone can surpass Liu Cixin in the way of Liu Cixin. Even Liu Cixin himself cannot surpass himself just by repeating himself. But rather, I see in these new writers truly a trend that can surpass Liu Cixin in a different direction. Well,、uh, Liu Cixin, Hansung, all these writers came from、uh, came from the past century. They lived through the Cultural Revolution. They saw enough the madness years of Mao's reign.、Um, they wrote. About the ruins of modernity, ruins of Mao's legacy, 
um, are seeing in these young writers, a completely new generation of Chinese science fiction writers, uh, mainly women writers and some uh, non-binary writers. These are Mu Ming, Gu Shi, Tang Fei, Shuang Shimo, Wang Kanyu. Those writers I talked about uh, in the last chapter. I saw in them a break with uh, the Liu Cixin or handsome tradition of Chinese science fiction. They are past, uh, they kind of, they, they already passed uh, the new wave in the sense that they created their own new wave, uh, not following the new wave I talked about in the previous chapters. So they, they, they have concern, they have their concerns with the environmental problem, with uh, the rise of a LGBTQ plus, they are concerned with uh, uh, the non-binary structure of the future, um, truly the future where we can have the coexistence of uh, uh, everything, not in a kind of like a life and death struggle in the dark forest. Um, I do see in these writers a new hope. So writing about new wonders for non-binary universe, uh, that not only gave me a push toward writing about the new Baroque, but also gave the fear of seeing this book a hopeful uh, note to end the book. As for the new Baroque project, I will mainly uh, talk about writers um, doing really exper experiments with uh, the genre, with uh, realism, with uh, speculative fiction. This includes writers uh, largely uh, living in the gaps between the Middle Kingdom and uh, uh, the larger Sinophone sphere. sphere. Um, so this includes uh, writers like uh, Chen Chuncheng uh, living in Fujian, uh, including some Tibetan writers and uh, ethnic writers in Yunnan, uh, and uh, uh, Manchuria as well, Dongbei. Yeah. And, uh, um, but the main focus will be given to uh, some writers in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and uh, in Malaysia. Uh, who wrote in Chinese. Um, the new Baroque is uh, truly about mar multiplicity uh, in contemporary Chinese literature or contemporary Sinophone literature. Uh, um, so that perhaps will take me a few years to write about. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, listeners. We will have to wait a few years before we can hear about that next project, but we thank you so much for your time today. Um, and please, both Mingwei and our listeners alike, join us next time for another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Goodbye.